0: We are in a series called The Blessed Battle Through the Beatitudes, and uh, every week we have been in the rhythm and the habit of reading through all of the Beatitudes. We just think it's good to soak our minds and our hearts in the Beatitudes, all in one chunk. And so Morgan Jones is going to be our reader uh, this morning. All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, From the fifth chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our Lord. Hey, thank you, Morgan. Here we go. All right. Where were you on Friday between noon and noon thirty? There's a few days ago, noon and noon 30. Just try to think about it. Where were you around then? Let me tell you where I was. So I was on my way to shoot a house in Northwest Junction City. And it's not criminal. I promise. I wasn't going to shoot up a house. I have a real estate photography job on the side. I was going to shoot a house uh, in the north, uh, Northwest End. Of Junction City, and uh, so I had about a 35-minute drive from my house, and I uh, went ahead and settled into it, popped in an ear, earbud, and uh, put on I think the the latest of the January 6 hearings, which I found interesting, and uh, just went ahead and cruised on in. If you're familiar with Junction City, maybe these will sound familiar. I uh, I went ahead and exited on uh, off I 70 on 295 or exit 295 on 77 North, started heading that direction, crossed Ash Street, and then there was the Walmart neighborhood market on the right and then I started kept cruising on until I got to this intersection here let's see if the clicker's working there anyone know what this well it's not an intersection there's an overpass at uh, highway 18 and guess what I saw right in there in the shadow of the bridge at the last second not a deer but that's a good guess what else could be bad a police car of course it was right there it's the perfect spot because, man, I'm just cruising. I'm going down a hill. It feels like a highway. And so I did what everyone else I think would do in that situation. I see the police officer, and then what do you immediately do? You pump the brakes real hard. You don't even know if you were going too fast or not. That's what I did. I had no idea what the speed limit was, but I knew I was cruising. And then that moment when I look in the rearview mirror and his lights come on, and it's for me, oh feeling. I was busted. I was busted. I was fairly sure that I was going too fast for conditions. I don't know what the speed limit was. But I sat there, you know, after he pulled me over, I sat there on the side of the road with my window down and the officer has my license and my information. He's running it on his computer and I'm sitting there and I have that sinking feeling. Oh, no, something bad is about to happen. I know what's probably coming. I'm going to get a ticket. I'm gonna get a ticket, it's gonna be expensive, my insurance is gonna go up for like 30 years. I even thought, what if somebody drives by and sees me on the side of the road? Have you ever had that feeling? Actually, uh, the house I was going to shoot was just another mile up the road and I knew the realtor that I was shooting it for was gonna pass right by, gonna meet me at the house. And I thought, oh no, what if Randy sees me right there? When's the last time you had one of those moments Like that, where you kind of sit in this kind of hopeless dread. You know, something bad is probably about to happen and you're almost powerless to do anything about it and you have nothing else to do but just kind of sit and wait in your anxiety and pray. When's the last time you had a moment like that? We all have them. Maybe like me, you got pulled over this week and then you know exactly how I felt. Maybe you were wronged. Maybe you wronged someone else. Maybe you had a fight with your spouse or a friend and you knew that you had said and done something not quite right. Maybe it was through no fault of your own. Maybe you experienced kind of a shell shock of betrayal from a loved one or a friend or a coworker. Maybe it was something heavier, like a moment when you receive that diagnosis or you lose your job or something financial, financial squeeze hits and you can't avoid it anymore, something really bad happens and maybe you don't know how you're gonna make ends meet. When's the last time you had a moment like that? You don't have to answer out loud, but you're just trying to think for yourself. So how did that feel in the moment? Can you remember how it felt in your body? For me, it's that sinking feeling and the anxiety wells up And can you feel with me? Hopefully, you can at some times. The rush of relief. The rush of relief when the officer hands you back your license and says, I'm just going to let you off with a warning this time. Please just slow down. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus when the wave of relief crashes on the shore of your anxiety and it lifts you up and everything kind of rises up in this groundswell, this swell of happiness. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Jesus. When the sun comes out and you get to drive away scot-free, or maybe you find out it's actually not cancer, or you're reconciled, that is what mercy feels like. What mercy feels like. We're in a sermon uh, series on the Beatitudes, and uh, this blessed battle we're calling it. And so we're looking at Jesus's, the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, kind of his famous uh, teaching section in Matthew 5, and he's talking about what life is like in his kingdom. He's talking about the way things work in his upside-down kingdom. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the blessed life, the deeply happy life for those who are merciful. This is verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I'm gonna throw out the big idea today. Sometimes you hear a teaching, perhaps, and uh, the big idea comes at the end. Today, it's coming at the beginning, and then we're gonna spend the rest of our little uh, study time together unpacking it. The big idea for today is you will be happy and fulfilled when you receive and give mercy as a settled lifestyle, Not just once in a while, but as a settled lifestyle, you will be happy when you're giving and receiving mercy. Oh, man, that receiving mercy, that was really working for me on Friday afternoon. Let me tell you, I should have looked at the officer's name. I don't know if it's appropriate to send a thank you for not giving me a ticket. I didn't. Maybe I should have. He showed me mercy. Christ followers' lives are happy. And rich and fulfilled and deeply satisfying and joyful when their default engagement with others is overwhelming mercy, not just a little bit, a general lifestyle over of overwhelming mercy. And that is made possible by, for the believer, experiencing the overwhelming mercy that God gives us through Christ. That's the powerhouse, that's where it comes from. You don't have to be a Christian to show mercy, but in God's kingdom, The way that it works is if you experience the love of God, the mercy of God, it tends to flow out and flow over. And so that sounds nice, right? That sounds really nice. Let's give mercy. We're just going to be merciful and nice people. But as you may know, it's actually kind of difficult in our culture. Mercy is not really held in high regard, at least in some spots. Um, there's, a, uh, there's an Ohio pastor that has been influential for me and uh, I know for Ben Deaver in my uh, understanding of God and, and the church. His name is uh, Gary DeLashman. And uh, in one of his teachings, he says this about Jesus' teaching right here in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. He, Jesus, explains how to get into God's kingdom right now, not in the next life. And he describes what life in God's kingdom looks like. On both counts, he speaks as a kind of spiritual revolutionary because his message runs directly contrary to the religious and ethical and philosophical teachings of his day. In a sense, Jesus was forming a counterculture that would challenge the status quo, and this teaching was his manifesto. I think it doesn't take long to see that this is just as revolutionary today. One more quote. It's time from a different scholar. This is a Catholic scholar, um, Professor Dr. Uh, Aaron Urbanczyk, as best as I can uh, uh, say that one, from Global Catholic University. He says, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's a virtue to tolerate much, forgive all, and condone nothing. It's common moral sense. We tolerate the imperfections and sins of others. We forgive them from the heart as Christianity and other religions wisely urge, and yet never condone evil. But in our culture, and even in the cultures of our churches today, we now tend to condone much, tolerate little, and forgive nothing. Maybe you can resonate with that kind of feel, especially if you're on social media. Right? So mercy. Mercy is what we're talking about today. And... uh, Mercy right here, blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. And as we're going to talk a little bit more about in a minute, mercy is deeply intertwined with forgiveness and pity and compassion and loving kindness. Forgiveness is a huge part of mercy. And uh, I do think that that's largely gone out of style even in a lot of our church cultures today. Uh, Our culture definitely doesn't go that direction. And so Jesus is teaching here in the Beatitudes, and I would say in in particular here, verse 7, for those who are truly blessed and flourishing and happy and satisfied, the characteristics of them, it's really not quite the same as the characteristics that we tend to value in our culture today. I just had a little fun with this one. See if you can relate. I think a modernized Beatitudes lensed and I think distorted through our culture and values today might look more something like this. Blessed are those who demand for themselves for they will be seen as strong. Blessed are those who hold on to their outrage for they will be justified. Blessed are those who type strong, strong words on social media for they will be noticed. Blessed are those who refuse to compromise, for they will be respected. Blessed are those who never back down, those who are inflexible, who shout down and double down on their demands. Blessed are those who overcome their opposition through force, for they will win. Blessed are those who show no mercy, for they will live secure. It's really different. Really different from what Jesus is teaching here. This countercultural teaching is really upside down, I think, to our culture. But perhaps we're the ones that may be upside down. And I think this comes into the church even. We've got some upside down thinking. Instead, Jesus, the guy who invented everything, the guy who uh, lit the first stars and who holds all the black holes together, the guy who invented and created you and who is the author of life itself, he knows how it works best. He seems to say that you're blessed when you're humble, when you're merciful, when you don't uh, stand up for yourself at all costs, when you're seemingly weak. Blessed are you when people reject you and despise you for your trust in Jesus, when you're disrespected and when you lose, even when you're poor and broken and sad. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is the word of the Lord. So, I want you to pause here and just take a minute. We want you to engage with these times and not just listen to a teaching. We want you to engage with the Lord on your own, yourself. And even if you uh, don't come in professing Christ or faith in Christ, that's fine. The scriptures tell us that the Lord is always near and listening. So maybe in the quiet of your own heart, engage with him on this. Where do you feel dissonance with this way of life? Blessed are blessed. That's the happy, deeply fulfilling life, this good life. Where do you feel dissonance in your experience? I'd encourage you to land on one. It's okay if there's multiple, but land on one this morning. And in the privacy of your own mind, just tell God, I'm feeling dissonance with this. And then invite him to speak to you if he would choose. If you wouldn't mind, briefly pray that the Lord would speak through me this morning. All right. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. So we've got to just look a little bit, what do we mean by mercy? I talked about this a little bit before. Mercy, the Greek word, the word that was written in uh, Matthew, the original uh, language was Greek there. The Greek word here is eleison, eleison. You want to try that with me? Eleison, one more time. Eleison, eleison. Uh, If you grew up in Catholic, maybe some more Eastern Orthodox traditions, this word may be familiar Kyrie eleison. Have you ever heard that phrase? Kyrie eleison. It's a phrase all throughout the Bible. It means, Lord, have mercy. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. You see it all throughout the scriptures. Uh, If you read the Psalms, especially the Psalms of David, it's everywhere. He's often saying, Kyrie eleison, at least in his language. Lord, have mercy in Hebrew. Throughout the book of Matthew that we're in today, chapter 17, uh, we see uh, two, uh, no, this one was uh, a man was bringing his son who was afflicted, and he said, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy on my son. In chapter 15, a Canaanite woman cries out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. Chapter 20, two unnamed blind men come to Jesus and they shout at the top of their lungs, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy on me. And in Luke 18, which we're going to dive a little bit more into here in a second, there's a, uh, a parable that Jesus t- teaches where there's two men who come close to the temple and they pray. There's this uh, tax collector, this guy that everyone despises. He's kind of like the mobster guy. Everyone hates him. And he comes to God and he just says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it contrasts that, Jesus contrasts that with the religious guy who would have seemed altogether the good guy, but he says smugly, Lord, I thank you that I'm already good. I'm not like this schmuck over here. I don't even really need your mercy. And the man who prayed Kyrie eleison, the mobster, he went home justified before the Lord. Eleison, it's full of compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness and pity. It can, forgive to, uh, or it can refer to mercy that you give towards others when they owe you a debt or they have done you something wrong. So forgiveness is a big part of it. Uh, that word can mean sparing someone else from some uh, difficult labor. Kyrie eleison. It can also mean showing active kindness towards someone when they're hurting or broken or distressed. And it's an active word in all of these senses. You can't get away with just thoughts and prayers and just the feelings, just the thoughts. Don't count. This word is very active. It gets involved. It's an active word. To bring someone, not only just spare them from the negative that might be due them, but to come forward and to lean in and give them good and help and healing. Mercy usually costs the merciful. One of the best examples of mercy, I think, in the scriptures, is in the very familiar. Even if you don't know a lot about God or the scriptures, you've probably heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. I love it. It's in Luke 18, and I love the uh, the roundup. Not the roundup. The beginning, kind of the lead into this parable. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. On one occasion, an expert of the law, a religious dude, stood up to test Jesus. He was trying to like trick Jesus. He wasn't really asking. He said, "Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" Because Jesus had just told that parable about the two prayers and how the sinner dude actually ended up justified before the Lord. So, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He says, "Well, Jesus." Or, well, Jesus replied, "What's written in the law? How do you read it?" And he answered, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself." Yeah, that's in the Old Testament. He knew his Old Testament. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. If you go do this, you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? I love it. And in reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this is just a tiny little detail that kind of gives authenticity, veracity to the scriptures, In a lot of our Western thought, if we were to write this, we would have said going up, because up was north. But they didn't care as much about north, south, east, and west. They knew about elevation. You actually did have to go up to Jerusalem. And when you went down to Jericho, you would go down. He was going back down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest good guy. He happened to be coming down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed around on the other side. Oh, no. That's not what the pastor should do. So to a Levite, another religious guy, when he came to the place, he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, oh, the Samaritan. As he traveled, he came where the man was, and he saw him. When he saw him, he took pity on him. Pity. Remember that's so intimately connected with mercy. He went with, uh, to him, and he bandaged bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. It's about two days' wages. So like two 300 bucks. And gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Oh, missed that one there. Which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus asks. Which of the three, and the expert of the law, unwilling to even refer to the Samaritan, he just said, the guy who showed him mercy. This is mercy. And Jesus said, yeah, go and do likewise. This is mercy. So in the day, the Jews and the Samaritans, they did not like each other. They were social enemies. They avoided each other whenever possible. Each thought they were right about a great many things, and the other was not only wrong, but repugnant. Repugnant. Can you think of any factions in our society today that are kind of like that? Maybe this one still connects. And yet, it's this despised Samaritan who goes back and takes care of the man. All of the other religious folks, they saw the guy, but they couldn't be inconvenienced. They wouldn't slow down. They kept going. But it's the Samaritan, right? If we look back here, verse 33, he's the one who took pity. Remember, that's mercy. He stopped He took on some extra risk because there was clearly robbers around. Police force wasn't really bumping in those days. There was real danger. He was vulnerable if he was gonna stop and help. He moved towards the hurting man. How do you do mercy? Let's pay attention here. He stopped. He moved towards the hurting man. He took some extra risk, and then he touched him. He touched him. He took out his own supplies, he poured on his own stores of oil and wine to disinfect and to promote healing, right? He put him up and picked him up on his own donkey, and he got down and walked. I'm sure he got a little bit of blood on him, maybe. It's fairly messy. And he walked, took him into the next inn, and then he stopped again and took care of him all night oh man, this mercy thing is getting pretty intense. And then the next day, he put down a down payment to the innkeeper for all that he would have to do in the future. And then he even said, I'm coming back. I'm not done with this thing. I'm actually coming back. And if there's more costs, I will give you more. He didn't just stay detached. He was gonna be engaged with this thing for the long haul. And so real practical, real-life mercy is like this. And that's what Jesus says all of his followers should do and be like. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Right? This isn't an earning thing. In the English, it can almost maybe sound like that if you read it through a a specific lens. This isn't an earning thing. Jesus isn't saying, you need to be merciful to others in order to merit and earn God being merciful to you. He's talking about life in his kingdom. If you're in his kingdom, you already have received mercy from him. This isn't about earning. It's about how life works in his kingdom. So how are we to do this? I hope you're asking that. How are we to do this? Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. How are we going to do this? Uh, Perhaps you know the old truism. You can only give away what you already have. I think that applies here. If we're going to become like the good Samaritan, we have to first become like the hurting man and receive mercy from God ourselves. Experience how God has already shown us mercy. That's the only way this thing's gonna keep going. We must realize we are that wounded man because God himself is the ultimate good Samaritan. Have You ever thought about it that way? God himself is the ultimate good Samaritan. He's not just telling us we should do that. He's already done it. And he's always been that way. If you read the scriptures, especially from the beginning, you see that God's uh, uh, penchant for mercy is there from the beginning. Those who think that, G- that God is, uh, was this tyrant, unmerciful God of the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes in and starts being nice, haven't really read the scriptures. God is full of mercy from the beginning. Uh, Psalm 145. This is just one of so many examples. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, writes King David. He's slow to anger and great in mercy. He's writing from his own experience. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. That is God. This is our God. Ever since the fall, since our ancestors, Adam and Eve, chose that they actually did not want to live life God's way, they were going to try to find the good life on their own, Everything went sideways. And instead of this blissful good life that the evil one, the snake, had been promising them, we have experienced the desert lands. We have experienced the difficult and dead life where we're delirious. We can't see straight. We fall prey to evil. In Revelations 3, Uh, God himself is talking to a group of people not so unlike ourselves. And he says, you say, I'm rich. This works for Americans fairly well. I've acquired wealth. I'm doing well. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that actually you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. As I see things in reality, you are actually in great need. You are dying and helpless in a ditch, and you don't know it. Utterly unable to save yourselves. In the New Testament, I love this. This is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible Ephesians chapter 2. In the New Testament, Paul writes to another church, again, not so unlike ourselves, and reminding them, he said, And you were dead. You used to be dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, once walked on that road, and you were dead. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the evil one, not God. Carrying out the desires of your body and of your mind, doing the best you could on your own. You were by nature childrens of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, two of the best words in the whole scriptures, but God who, lost my place here, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. I love that. It's my Southern Baptist roots kind of coming back there for a second. There was always a guy that would shout amen. I think it's sometimes quite appropriate. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All of us, by default, are dead and broken and bleeding out on our own apart from Christ. That is the central message of what the scriptures teach us. It's the downer. It's the bummer, unless it's true. If it's true, oh, thank you, God, for telling me, especially if I can't see it. We were dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves. Let's see here, right there, but God. Not just having mercy, but being overly and aboundingly rich in mercy. He's moved towards us and picked us up. And kind of where I want us to land here today is to see and really see Jesus as the greatest Samaritan for you and for me. Just think about this. Remember the story and all of the little details that were in there. When he saw us, he saw us. Even when we were his professed enemies lying, d- dying in a ditch, he came by and took pity, had mercy on us. And he came in close. He stopped. He made himself vulnerable, even when he didn't have to. And with his own hands, the very hands of God, he touched us. His people. He came so close that he touched us and he lifted us up. He lifted us up and he bore the full weight of our sin and our brokenness, the full weight of our death and our shame and our brokenness. He put it upon himself. He got off his donkey that he had ridden into Jerusalem Hold on. And then with his own feet, he walked under the weight of the cross up to the hill on Golgotha where he would give his life for us. He didn't stay distant. He knew, maybe this morning you need to see a God who did not stay distant from the problem of human suffering. But instead, he chose to become part of it and to pick you up and to bear it on his back. His own bleeding hands spread wide on the cross as Isaiah 53 prophesied, so that by his wounds we could be healed. His blood poured out. The new wine of the new covenant based no longer, the covenant between us and God, no longer based on our own works to please God, but on God's own righteousness, his own mercy alone, apart from our works. This is the good news. The new covenant bought through the blood of Christ poured down on us. It's that moment Dare I say, like when I got my license back and I got to drive away scot-free, but magnified a million times more. That is your experience if you're in Christ. When the sun comes up and you move from death into life. The surprising, elating gift. He who was rich in mercy himself stood in the gap and took our spot became the one person for whom the beatitude of Matthew 5-7 would not hold. The one who was mercy himself, who showed mercy all the days of his life, in that moment on the cross was shown no mercy. By the people and even by God himself, the entire weight of all of our sin and our death and our shame put on him. And forsaken and alone on the side of the road, he died. No one came to help. So that when on the third day he rose again, God vindicated him and put him in a place that was above every other so that at his name, every knee would bow and tongue confess that he is Lord, not just so that he would get all the glory, but so that he could become the greatest and ultimate good Samaritan, always able to lift you up and me up and bring us healing in life. And he promises he's coming back. I love that part. He promises, I'm coming back, and until I do, he gave us a down payment for our uh, healing in the meantime. The scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit was given as a down payment, and the work of God through the Holy Spirit in these days until Jesus comes back is to bring us healing and hope. That is God's work right now. And if you are in Christ, that work is working in you and it is available to you. He wants to heal you more and more and more so that you can overwhelm with a life of mercy and give it away to others. Am I making the point? I'm kind of circling the drain on this one. I think that the only way Especially as Christians, that we will be able to live a life of overwhelming, overpouring, gushing over, cup pouring out, over everything, pouring out mercy is if we experience the love of God, the mercy of God for us. Otherwise, it turns into duty, and we kind of stop doing it. Maybe that's your experience. It's sure mine. So I kind of want to hammer this one home. And all this is to the glory of the Father. Another of my favorite verses, First Peter 1, 3. It talks about how the mercy of God is not only for our joy, which it is, it's not only for the healing of the world, which it is, but praise also be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Amen. The deeply happy life will come as they give it away. So let's just land this plane today with some application. Sound good? I would would love it if you came away with one thing Maybe from your own uh, understanding, maybe from the, 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 the Lord speaking to you, one thing that God wants you to take away from today for you. Maybe the applications will help. And I see there being two main applications, each with two variants. Experience God's mercy towards you. I think that's the only way that you're gonna have the power, that you're gonna have the overflowing cup to keep pouring out. And then act mercifully. It's kind of fairly straightforward, right? <laughs> I'm not going to get the extra pay for this one this one's fairly straightforward experience God's mercy towards you maybe you need to experience his mercy towards you for the first time maybe today you need to take that first step to experience God's mercy by saying God I want your mercy his mercy is available to all but he doesn't extend it he doesn't overextend himself he doesn't go where he's not wanted he does, the gift doesn't become yours until you take it And so maybe today you need to, in the quiet of your own heart, just tell Jesus, I am ready to receive your mercy. I need you, God. Lord, have mercy. And he will. Or maybe, maybe like many of us, you need to remember. Maybe not just remember with your mind, but remember with your heart and with your experience. You need to remember the great mercy you've received. That stuff takes some cultivating. You need to remember. It's a constant struggle, I think to kind of be fresh in remembering and experiencing God's mercy. But there's something that's not quite right when you get stuck. Not like you've done something wrong or you're losing your salvation or something, but if you're stuck, if you're feeling stuck like you're not feeling it, it's really hard to feel God's love and mercy. If that goes on for a while, you're probably stuck somewhere. And I think that is God's invitation to another area that he's wanting to invite you into his healing in. It's not necessarily something wrong, but it is something that needs to be addressed. And so I would encourage you to lean into that, to talk to someone who you know who knows Jesus. Talk to me, talk to one of the other uh, pastors around here. Oftentimes, uh, a, uh, speaking with a, a trained therapist can be really helpful. You need to lean into mercy, perhaps, and remember for yourself. And then finally, act mercifully. The band can go and come up. Act mercifully. Act mercifully. For many of us, we need to start by acting mercifully towards ourselves. For me, this is actually the harder one. It's more easy for me to act mercifully towards others, but it's so hard for me to do it to myself. If that's you, maybe you need to recognize that. Maybe you need to practice being kind to yourself. You probably need some help with that one too. And you need to act mercifully towards others. Oftentimes, being merciful towards others is gonna be limited by how merciful you're able to be towards yourself. Move into those places of resistance, those areas of blocks. As you act mercifully towards others, get creative. You need to do what the good Samaritan did. You need to open your eyes and see. But then you also need to slow down and stop and be willing to touch. It's messy. Be willing to move in and to lift up with the power of Christ. Get into situations where you have to extend mercy on a real practical level. Maybe it's someone that's totally random, someone you don't know. Sometimes we need to see those people. Maybe there's an act of mercy you need to extend. Oftentimes, I think, it's for people that we already know. Someone in your family, someone in your church, someone in your neighborhood. Maybe you see a financial need. Maybe you see someone's need for relationship or their hunger to grow in Christ. And you need to be willing to come alongside and to meet with them. Maybe read the Bible together and be willing to move in there even if you don't feel certain about how this is gonna go. Who is the Lord bringing to mind right now as we close that you need to extend mercy towards? Chances are it's the person that comes to mind that you hope it's not them. what's the next step you need to take in response to this teaching today? I encourage you to spend a minute or so, a few moments, answering that question before the Lord. Thanks. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.